welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. Well, as I said, the title of our message is The Abundance of the Kingdom, and we are in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. I was thinking a lot about abundance, and you'll, you'll see in a little bit as we, as we read this particular uh, account of a miracle that Jesus performed, um, but I was thinking a lot about you know, what, what abundance is and kind of how we experience uh, abundance in America. I think we live and we are, we are blessed to be in America, which is a very prosperous nation. We are a nation that very rarely knows scarcity or, or hunger. You know, a lot of the, the, not to say that people aren't hungry in America, when, when it, but when it is people who are hungry, it's usually due, a, due to a lack of uh, funds. It's usually due to, to poverty, not due to a lack of supply. I was listening to a, um, a historian a couple weeks back, and he was noticing the, especially in the last couple years, what kind of the, the unique stance that America takes or the unique posture that America takes in times of, of scarcity, that America doesn't, you know, scale back and, and maybe consume less, but America produces more essentially like that. We know scarcity very little. And I think, you know, last year in particular, it was probably like the first and only glimpse we've ever seen of scarcity. Do you guys remember the toilet paper craze in, in March uh, 2020? I remember going on, and this is just a show of, of how ridiculous, you know, our shopping needs um, were at the, the time. But I just wanted to go into Ralph's, I remember, to buy a jar of pepperoncinis. And that was the first time I went in, into there and, and I realized, oh, something's going on because there was huge lines. There was a rush on everything. There was no toilet paper and what? There were no eggs. There was no hand sanitizer. And then soon the, the meat started to disappear off the shelf. The frozen food started to disappear. And it was like this strange feeling of, oh, this is what, you know, maybe this is what my great grandparents felt like, you know, during the Great Depression, you know, just a little bit of scarcity, but really it's, it's almost only slightly peeling off the veil of, of America's true prosperity. And, and it's kind of helping us to understand, no, this is what most of the world and even most of human history kind of feels, you know, most of human history, people really did felt, feel hunger pains, not maybe even to, due to a lack of funds, but due to a lack of access there, there just wasn't availability. And in so many ways, we, we don't understand that quite. Well, despite our abundance, I, I have to caveat, though, in America, you know, we have a lot of goods. We have, you know, 10 different kinds of soup, canned soup on the shelf. But despite our abundance, I think there, there's a certain amount of scarcity or there's a certain amount of impoverished, uh, there's a certain amount of, of poverty, if you will, that, that's in a spiritual sense. You know, we, when we have a lot of abundance, we tend to become numb to the things of God and maybe numb to true spiritual needs. We see that even as, as Pastor John Bandman taught last week in the story of Herod, where he was giving a feast but we saw also his spiritual depravity, his, his spiritual poverty, and how he made a decision to kill John the Baptist, to behead him, that he himself regretted. He, he was led to do something that he didn't want to do. And so we see that even in, in times of the, the first century, there, there were places of, 
abundance and prosperity, but deep spiritual poverty. But in contrast to what we studied last week of, of Herod's uh, decision that resulted in that tragedy and the death of John the Baptist, Mark in verse 30 of Mark chapter 6, drops us in another scene, and he drops us in a very desolate place, a place of scarcity. But it's here that Jesus performs a miracle that shows us, kind of conversely and, and by contrast, the abundance, the true abundance of the kingdom of God by the power of Jesus. And it shows us his sufficiency as a Lord, his sufficiency as a, as a shepherd, which we'll, which we'll talk about in a bit, and also just the, the way in which the kingdom of God is shown to work among Jesus and his disciples and the people he ministers to. So that's really the context of our passage. We have this, this tragic thing after, uh, that happens during a feast that's recorded. But then we return to something else and we start to read it in Mark chapter 6, verse 30 right here. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away into the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So you see a couple things here. In the, in the section previous to the section that kind of details the story of Herod and John the Baptist, we, we, if you remember, Jesus had sent out the, uh, the apostles the, he, to go teaching and to preach the kingdom of God. And they were devoting great time to ministry. Remember, they were set out two by two. They were asked not to carry even a second cloak. They were to be light on their feet, and they were to simply strip down everything to say, we are devoted to preaching the word of God. And they were having, evidently, great success. Because they, they came and they, they couldn't wait to tell Jesus what they had done and what they had taught. And it's, there's another contrast that's happening here in the, the, the kind of end of John the Baptist's ministry and the, the rise of the ministry of Jesus and his followers. It begins to explode. And so this is really what caught the attention of Herod, that this, this ministry that's happening here. But we also see something else. Even though there appears to be success in their ministry, there's also busyness. There's also the intense labor that the ministry required. We see it, it, this in the phrase in, in verse 31, uh, many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. It was getting out of hand. There was always something more to do. There was always another sermon to preach. The disciples were constantly going around and calling people, calling sinners to repent. They were going around ministering to people. And so Jesus comes alongside and he intervenes. He, he inserts himself in their ministry and he says, hey, hey guys, let's come away and rest. He calls them away to rest. And this is just really an act of mercy from our Lord. But specifically, he calls them away to, not to a, a vacation destination, not to maybe a, a great party and, and a banquet uh, by, by themselves, but a desolate place. A desolate place. And I think we, we understand that a little bit. You know, we don't have that many desolate places anymore. Uh, we, we don't have many pockets of even California or America or or you know, cell phone signal doesn't reach. But 
we do understand the need and, and the, the appeal of desolate places in many occasions for people to just get away from it all, to get away, to completely unplug from the busyness of everything. And those locations are usually deserts, they're, they're mountains, they're places that are kind of off the grid. And we know there are also usually bad reasons for people to escape to desolate places. You know, people want to live off the grid. They don't want to be dependent on the government. Or people are just running away from the law and they, they would rather hide out somewhere and live out of the reach of, of uh, federal agents or something like that. But in this case, we should consider, as we, all, as we look at our own kind of busy lives, as maybe the ministry we're involved in, um, this is a good thing. You know, this is... It's a good thing to go away to a desolate place, to a certain wilderness, if you will, because Jesus wanted to bring them away for the benefit of their spiritual lives in order to commune with God and to experience his power. How do I know this? It's something that Jesus himself practiced. In Mark uh, chapter 1, early in the, in the account of the gospel, we see Jesus after he, the Holy Spirit, him. After uh, he's, he's baptized, he goes into the wilderness and he's ministered to by angels after he's tempted for 40 days. And we also see in Mark chapter 1, um, verse 35, Jesus practiced kind of desolation, if you will, spiritual. Uh, he, he practiced kind of this, this holy retreat. And he says, and Mark says, and rising very early while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. So I think... Just finding a desolate place uh, is really an undertaught principle in Scripture. And it's from this, this kind of concept that we do get the church as a general, the way we practice, uh, we get that concept of retreat. And that, you know, that's what the women are, are planning right now in November. They're planning a retreat. And that's essentially the same concept, to get away from it all, not simply to unmoor ourselves from the trappings of the world in some sort of uh, Eastern Buddhist sense, but rather to get back into fellowship, to remove the distractions, to get back into fellowship, to realign ourselves, and to experience the power of God. And this is something we, just as an aside, we should cultivate in our own spiritual lives. You know, there, there's the concept of, you know, doing your devotion. I think that's, that's really healthy. Um, but to, to have regular devotional time, I, I recall uh, someone telling me that, you know, that they, they lived in a very kind of busy household and they really couldn't get any away time and they ended up just going into the bathroom because that's where no one could bug them. That's where they read the Bible. That's where they had time alone with God. And that's something that, that we can even practice in our own lives. But even though the disciples were about to experience the, the power of God and to uniquely fellowship with God in a specific way, it wasn't going to happen in the way they might have anticipated, as we'll see from the later details that arise from this narrative. In verse 33, we read on, it says, Now many saw them going and recognized them. They knew who they were. They had notoriety. And they ran on there on foot to all, from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So this retreat that Jesus' planning for the disciples seems to be derailed, 
by a crowd following them to their destination. They see them from afar, they're getting on the boat, and it must have been an awkward thing because the disciples are going onto a boat into some lo remote location in, in Galilee, and people are walking around on the shore to go and find where they're gonna land. And so there's that anticipation of like, oh, here's the crowd again. And indeed, the crowd doesn't really get, uh, it doesn't really have a great reputation in the Gospel of Mark. There's the crowd, it's always pressing, it's always consistent, and it's even the crowd that, that rejects Jesus um, in his own hometown. They don't exactly have a great reputation, but Mark inserts something very particular that I want you to take note of uh, in this story about the nature of Jesus. Mark describes he, he introduces Jesus at the very uh, beginning of the gospel as the Son of God. And he shows us this by Jesus' teachings and the parables and, and by Jesus' miracles. But in this one particular occasion, he just tells us something about Jesus. And he tells us that Jesus saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. We get this incredible Jesus point of view, how Jesus sees a crowd I'm not one for crowds, and I know not a lot of us are, especially in California, because crowds mean traffic, crowds mean uh, long lines at Disneyland, crowds mean even mobs at their worst. But Jesus saw this crowd, and something in this, the crowd in this context moved him with compassion. And how instructive it is for us even just to see this perspective of Jesus. Something that we would see as a problem, he looks at, with compassion, and he, see, he sees himself as a solution. One thing I, I read uh, recently in the, in the book that, by the way, we're giving away free, and I hope you're, you're reading it as well. Um, this is a book about uh, Christ's compassion in the chapter about Jesus's heart. Um, Dana Ortland and Gentle and Lowly says, it is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of, exaggerated. It cannot be plumbed, but it is easily neglected, forgotten. We draw too little strength from it. I think a lot of times those who are maybe serving in ministry or, or serving in our family or, you know, trying to obey the Lord in, in certain ways, we, we start from a point of, okay, this is work that needs to be done. This, these are tax, tasks that need to be checked off. But in, in terms of our overall motivation, we would learn a lot from just simply the heart of Christ to do things motivated out of compassion because we love people. So when Jesus sees this crowd, it moves him, but for a very specific reason, and we see a word picture that Mark is applying to Christ in his thoughts. He has compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is why he couldn't be indifferent to the crowd, because he had a heart like a shepherd, and he saw himself as their shepherd. And he took, takes ownership an oversight of this crowd of people that, that emerges from their homes. This is a specific connection that this gospel is making to spiritual leaders of Israel. They're, they're referred to often as shepherds, people who are especially and divinely appointed by God to oversee his people. And the characteristic, the descriptions of shepherds are shown in many ways, but here are three specific ways um, that we see shepherds represented in the Bible. Number one, shepherds lead. Shepherds are leaders of God's people. 
in the Old Testament, Moses, he, he worried and he concerned himself about the state of people, the people of God after he died. And so he made this statement at Numbers chapter 27, starting in verse 16 through 17. He says, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. What Moses is referring to is, hey, yes, these people are God's people, but they need a tangible leader. They need someone they can trust and confide in. Otherwise, they're vulnerable. They're like sheep. They, they need someone to lead them. But not only do shepherds lead, shepherds also protect. God says this about himself, about his very people kind of under threat, to be exiled and scattered. He says this in, in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 12. He says, as a shepherd seeks out his flock that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And lastly, for our purposes, shepherds also provide for their sheep. Shepherds make provision for their sheep. In a very familiar passage, you, you likely all know it. Psalm 23, verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, I have all I need, is, is another translation. And so this is something that we see, this particular aspect, is something that we see very shortly in this very story. But this is not the only case. It's, it's uh, one of many instances where Jesus is referring to himself as a shepherd, a shepherd of his people, deeply devoted to his flock. And so Jesus, when he sees the crowd, he perceives a spiritual need of theirs, of which even they themselves seem to be unaware. For whatever reason, whatever motives they have, they left their houses, they travel a long while, we don't know how many miles they traveled, but they wanted to approach Jesus. But Jesus saw a very specific spiritual need for, their, for spiritual leadership. And even though they didn't seem to recognize who Jesus was or they didn't seem to maybe grasp his full deity, Jesus wanted to minister them and, and to, to teach them, as we see in this passage. And to be certain, it's kind of an evangelistic outreach of some sort on Jesus's part to show them himself, to reveal himself in a very specific way. And so in verse 34, we read that he teaches them. He teaches them many things that um, of the many things that characterize Jesus's ministry, particularly in the gospel of Mark, it's the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus had very, had a very simple, specific message as recorded in Mark one. He said, repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is near. And that, that was likely the content of his teaching, though we're not told specifically, but it was a a fundamental part of it. And so Jesus takes this opportunity. It's an impromptu teaching session, but it wasn't the only part of his ministry in this particular instance. They also have an urging, pressing need, which the disciples identify for him. And so in verse 36, the disciples are worried because the crowd is in a desolate place and they recognize, hey, there's something uh, going to go south pretty badly, uh, pretty quickly here. People are going to be hungry. And so he says, the disciples say, send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves, to buy themselves something to eat. 
And so the disciples bring this problem to Jesus and they, they seem to have even compassion for the crowd. Maybe they share a little bit and they glean a little bit of the compassion that Jesus had for the crowd. And so to give them credit, yes, they, they brought the concern to Jesus, but at the same time, they didn't see themselves even as the answer of tending, tending to these specific needs. They must have maybe seen how Jesus was stepping into involvement in the crowd and they were like, hey, Jesus, maybe step back a little bit. They're their own responsibility. Maybe, maybe we can give them some, some money or something like that so they can, they can buy themselves something to eat. Maybe they're trying to save Jesus some embarrassment that these people who are coming, they, they're not experiencing any kind of hospitality and they, they might experience great hunger pains. So they find a solution. Hey, yes, send them away. Get them out of here. You know, Leave them out of maybe our responsibility. But in this setting, Jesus' response was not to relieve themselves of this problem, but he instead gives it back to them. Look in verse 37. He says, you give them something to eat. And they reply, and they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you uh, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then they, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And he sat down in groups. They sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. So Jesus asks them this question, hey, what do you have? And they will, it's like, well, we, we have a little bit. We have, we have a few things. And Mark carefully kind of tones and, 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 and marks his, his own description of this thing. There were only five loaves. Listen, there were five loaves when we started. There were only two fish. And something happened. This, this miracle happens. And we'll, we'll get to a little bit of the aftermath in, in a second. But just look at the descriptions that Mark has. It didn't appear that, that, you know, Jesus, he took the loaves together and he made a giant pile of loaves. And then he distributed them. And people are like, oh, that's where the loaves are coming from. No, he got five loaves and he fed huge crowds of people. He fed hundred, crowds of hundreds and fifties. And then Mark was very specific to say he, he got the two fish and he fed all these people. So something happened. We don't know exactly how it happened, but in the distribution of this food, Christ made abundance out of scarcity. Christ distributed and blessed an entire crowd out of very little. And so between the, the, the handing of the, the loaves and, and the, the fishes and, and the distri distribution, somehow everyone got fed. And notice this particular way in which um, Jesus started distributing the thing. He said a blessing, or he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves. And he was very much teaching the disciples something about the power and the kingdom of God. And whoever it happened, 
we can, you know, conjecture, you know, did he pull a loaf of bread and then it went like, it grew back and then he did it? Or, or was it maybe when they handed it, it became two? Uh, we don't know how it happened, but all of a sudden we have one of Jesus's most popular miracles even recorded in scripture. And it's like recorded in all four gospel accounts. And so we have this incredible miracle that happens when Jesus prays and he, and he blesses the loaves and he breaks them. And then we see the aftermath. Verse, verses 42 through 44 say this, And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So Mark gives a series of, of observations, just incredible observations about this particular miracle. And he's saying, okay, they, this is a desolate place. There's no 7-Eleven. There's no McDonald's. You can't go buy these people a McDouble. This is, this is first century desolation in Galilee. The disciples complained about the amount of money it would have taken to feed these people. And yet Jesus did something that fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Mark is very specific about documenting these things because he wants us to, he wants to leave us without doubt. He forces out the possibility that other things could have happened. I was reading some, some commentators and even some, some more liberal commentators believe, oh, you know, this is just an instance where they started distributing and people maybe open their knap stacks and they're like, oh, we got food, never mind. And they started distributing their own food to each other. And it was really a lesson about sharing. No, Mark is telling us that this was a miracle and he's telling us something about the power of Jesus. We're confronted with these facts. And he goes on to say, yes, there were even 12 baskets of leftover food. There, were, there was leftover fish. I'm not sure how well that would have kept afterward. But those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men in particular. And even uh, Matthew's account says that's even minus the women and children. So who even knows? It could have been 15,000. But what does this all mean? What is exactly going on here? Because... First, we're in awe because of this thing that's happening. But Mark is trying to drive us to a larger point and ask ourselves, what is Jesus's role in this miracle? Of course, it's a, it's a spectacular miracle because it stands apart. There's a scale of the miracle, the power of Jesus to, to break this bread and distribute it. And even though Jesus was to perform a similar miracle in just a couple chapters in Mark chapter eight, a very similar miracle, it really wasn't his intent merely to feed people. Jesus's ministry on earth for three years wasn't to open a food bank and merely to fill people's stomachs. It's imperative, imperative kind of for us to understand that in the larger context of his ministry, when Jesus taught parables, when he performed miracles, they were intended to give us a glimpse of God's power, to teach us something about God's kingdom. The preaching and the teaching and the demonstrating of this all leads us to something about this. And so there are two things we should understand as we, we emerge from this captivating glimpse of the kingdom of God. And the number one is that in the kingdom of God, we have a sufficient 
shepherd. Notice in the aftermath and the details, Mark tells us what, you know, some people may be left hungry. No, all ate and were satisfied. Christ's miracle in this case was sufficient and satisfactory for everyone. There were no poor reviews. There was no anyone who maybe didn't like the food even. They all ate and were satisfied. There was no rationing, even though they were in a desolate area where scarcity would have, would have happened if it would happen anywhere. There was no worry about running out of food. Jesus satisfied and benefited, personally benefited everyone under his care that he took ownership of. Even though they didn't realize that they were a witness to the power and the deity of Christ as their sufficient shepherd. It was through Christ even that they experienced the abundance of the kingdom of God in this desolate place. And in many ways, they ate better than any of those present at the feast of Herod. Because this is more than just about food. It's more than just simply about a meal and filling one's stomach for a day. Jesus is teaching them, specifically also in the disciples and us today, about the power and the abundance that comes with fellowship, communion, and worship of Jesus, who's providing over this provision. The power of God is demonstrated so much, especially in the Old Testament, by how God provides for his people, even over against other gods, other so-called gods and idols and powers. Many things that, many contrasts that God had made between himself and supposed gods, false gods, was the idea that those gods couldn't defend you from your enemies and those gods couldn't even feed you. But God says, I am sufficient. I can feed you. It's about the character and the sufficiency of God that to, to be able to, to feed and to provide for his people. Psalm 78 um, verses 18 through 20, 22 kind of relates to us a, a significant moment that made God angry because of his, what his people were saying. And it was because they doubted his provision. Psalm 78 verse 18 says, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? You drop down to verse uh, 21, it says, Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and they did not trust his saving power. At first glance, we're like, is God being kind of petty here? They're hungry, you know, maybe, maybe just feed them. Well, this point at which their perception that God couldn't feed them became a seed of doubt in their minds. And it resulted in the total disbelieving that God himself could even save. And that's why God was angry at them because of their complaints against him. Because as, as, as uh, Psalm 78 says, because they did not believe in God and they did not trust his saving power. It was emblematic of their larger unbelief. So God is not, you know, beholden to his people in this way to, to feed them. But God did see something disturbing in their complaint and their lack of faith. 
because doubt gained a foothold in their minds from this. And because of their inconstancy, they lost faith and they lost trust in the character of God. And so when we approach this miracle right here of the feeding of 5,000 people, it's supposed to invite us into faith. It's supposed to invite us into the trustworthiness and the sufficiency of our Lord and our Savior. Instead of, you know, falling on, on doubts and everything like that, Mark is a positive example to show us a faithful and compassionate Lord, a shepherd who is sufficient for our needs. But there's another thing that this miracle uh, instructs us in. And it's that in the kingdom of God, there is an overabundance. There is an overabundance. What do I mean by this? That the kingdom of God, there's more to the kingdom of God than you think. The disciples saw, okay, we have five loaves and two fish. Jesus made it more. And suddenly something that was so small grew into huge proportions until there was excess left over. Doesn't this sound like the, mir or the parables that Jesus was teaching just a couple chapters ago when he was talking about how it, it's kind of like a mustard seed in this plant or th this mustard seed that's planted and it's tiny. And then suddenly it grew and it, it burst onto the scene. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And we see that exemplified here especially in the, the tangible uh, uh, aftermath of what happened to the miracle. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and a fish. How do you get from five individual loads to just 12, to 12 baskets of leftovers? Someone uh, evidently, you know, had, had great leftovers for, for several days even of that. And simply there was just too much food to feed everyone. If you're into biblical numerology, you can, of course, also look at the, the number 12 and think of the 12 disciples and, and other instances. But for our purposes in our study today, just there's just too much food. Jesus made too much food. And it's a spirit of generosity behind it that shows us a lot about what the kingdom of God is like. Think of the generosity, you know, we experience and we we initiate at, at holidays or at birthdays or at special occasions. Think of the meal planning that happens in, you know, Hispanic households where it's like, oh, we have 18 guests. Okay, 300 tamales, like, like just too much stuff. And so that's what it shows us about the kingdom of God. We have too much food. And that's in our case too. You know, we have blessings overabundant in the church. As believers, we have overflowing blessings and what is God telling us also? Hey, feed other people. We can feed even more people. We don't have to worry about a scarcity of resources with the abundant resources that God gives us. His, his grace, his mercy, his power, his very Holy Spirit. But those who even who are outside the kingdom of God, who aren't believers, there's an overabundance. There's a place for you. You don't have to worry about not enough food for you. So this is a sign of the selflessness and the generosity of Christ. Christ who, when he was in the wilderness and he was being tempted by the devil to start, turn a single stone into bread for himself when he was fasting for 40 days, wouldn't even materialize bread for himself. But in this case, materializes and feeds 5,000 people. It's this generosity with which God 
gives us Christ. God gives us the Holy Spirit. God offers us forgiveness, the riches of his grace, the riches of fellowship and communion with him. It's an overabundant, it's almost like a profligate, wasteful kind of thing, but in the sense that God is never wasteful with anything. It's the kind of love and generosity that even changes a heart. And so those of us who are believers, just like the disciples witness, and just what Jesus was trying to tell them, you can rest in the abundance that God delivers us in Christ. Even in desolate times, even in desolate places, we can rest on the abundance and the power of God. And I'll end with this, with three particular ways that we can do that. How can we rest in his abundance? Well, I think uh, probably very plain in this particular uh, passage is we can rest in, in Christ for our own needs for our own provision. Jesus, of course, he taught the crowd. He had compassion on the crowd. He saw a spiritual need, yes. And he taught them about the kingdom of God, but he also took care of their, their physical needs. God will provide, and we should trust God to provide for our temporary needs. There's an interesting kind of strange passage later in the gospel of Mark that we'll study in a, a few weeks uh, in Mark chapter eight that shows kind of how much, exactly how much the disciples learned from this miracle and another miracle of Jesus feeding thousands of people. Because the disciples were talking about, oh, we have no bread, we're running out of bread. And Jesus turns to them in Mark chapter eight, verse 17, and he says, why are you talking about running out of bread? And then he asked them to remember something. He's like, do you remember how many baskets of leftovers you brought away from the feeding of 5,000 people and then the later feeding of 4,000 people. Remember how many leftovers that, why are you worried about these things? In the same way, Jesus tells us not to worry about what we would wear, what we would eat, because God provides for the needs of his people. But also we can rest in the abundance of God in our ministry, in what we do in our ministry. You know, we have great ministers in this church. We have people who love to serve, and I'm so thankful for that. But maybe at some points you feel like the disciples. People are coming and going. We don't even have time to eat, and you're getting exhausted and burnt out on ministry. But for you, there's a powerful lesson in this story. Because Jesus, the one who said, you give them something to eat, also said, blessings on the bread and gave it to them to distribute. And it reminds us of what ministry is when we are ministering to people, when we are preaching the gospel, when we are serving in the church. You are not the manufacturer, you are the distributor of God's blessings, the riches of God's kingdom. I love um, this uh, quote from Warren Wiersbe from his book on being a servant of God. He says, ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. They are not our resources, they're divine resources, they come from the Lord. Sometimes it's hard for us to have compassion, to look on a crowd with compassion, see things like Jesus does, because we don't have the resources in ourselves to solve the problem, but Christ does, and we have Christ. Lastly, how can we rest in the abundance of God? We can rest 
in our spiritual satisfaction Part of the reason we live in a you know, hyper-excessive, uh, maybe uh, consumeristic society that people often complain, you know, people, we have consumer electronics, people buy a new phone every year. And it's not because our, our needs are greater, but it's because in a, in a society of abundance, often our, our appetites are greater. And so it's important in our own walks with the Lord to remind ourselves that we're not we should not satisfy cravings, spiritual deep cravings for satisfaction in material goods, in a relationship, in sins. But rather we should satisfy ourselves with the Lord because it's often that our cravings for food and some bread lead us away from the Lord like it did in as recorded in Psalm 78. That they let us say, oh, oh God, is, God is keeping things from me. You know, God didn't get me this or get me that material things. Well, God is asking us to be satisfied in him. Psalm 16 says, in his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's why in this passage, when Jesus blessed and broke the bread, it should drive us to yet another passage later in Mark when he was breaking bread with the disciples in an in a event that we call the Last Supper. In Mark chapter 14, verse 22, Jesus blessed the bread and he broke it. But this time he handed it over to the disciples and he didn't say, oh, this is bread distributed. He said something very significant. This is my body given to you. And then he later gave them a cup and he said, this is my blood. Jesus satisfies us most deeply with himself. The world knows abundance. The world knows excess. We all know uh, many forms of, of prosperity. But not everyone knows satisfaction. And Christ, what Christ was doing when he was giving the disciples bread and giving them a cup and saying, this is my body and this is my blood. He was telling them about a deeper satisfaction in two ways. That number one, he was going to satisfy and appease God's wrath towards sinners. That through this death on the cross that he was about to do in this story, that he would offer us the forgiveness of sins. That, that God's wrath would pour out on Christ and not the sinner, that the sinner could be forgiven because their sins were put on Christ and forgiven through Christ. That's one level of satisfaction, but also remember that Christ also satisfies you. And you will not find any sort of satisfaction in the world apart from him. That's what the abundance of the kingdom is about. That's what Christ was trying to show the disciples and everyone who's present in the crowd. I can satisfy you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for these great glimpses of your kingdom, not only in your teaching, not only in your, the descriptions we find recorded in scripture of you, but also in the miracles that you perform. 
And Lord, let us come away from this passage rejecting things of this world even, things that don't satisfy us. Lord, even repenting of sins that only bring us shame, regret, and guilt, and to fly and to flee to you to find your mercy and grace. Lord, those of us who are in a desolate place, who are in a spiritual dry land or a wilderness, Lord, let them come to you. Let them have communion with you. Let them approach you that they might experience your power. They might experience being filled with your spirit. And Lord, I ask for all of us that we would see the true abundance and the riches that we have through Christ in the kingdom of God. Lord, again, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.